the National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your very first time listening or you've just started listening to us, we're really grateful to you. Thanks very much for choosing this podcast. This week, we are talking to the amazing and brilliant author Anne Enright, who has a new book out called The Wren, The Wren, a book I and many others thought should have been included on the Booker long list, but wasn't. The list is more or less a discovery list, which has been the case in the last few years of the Booker, because it's such an amazing PR machine. It's like mm-hmm. it's almost a waste. It's 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 such an opportunity to right. bring new voices into the public realm. So I think they take the judges have been taking that opportunity. Um, and so actually, that was the same impulse that brought my work to attention in 2007. So you say, actually, I, you know, grand, you know, and people who go around complaining that they don't win prizes. I always think of Trump and Georgia. (laughs) I say, no, you didn't win Georgia. You just didn't have the votes on the day. That was Anne Enright there being very classy about uh, her omission from the Booker Longlist and more from her later about The Wren, The Wren, which follows on from the success of her 2020 novel, Actress. The Wren, The Wren is a multi-generational story exploring family trauma and the love between mother and daughter told through three members of the same family, Nell, Carmel and Phil. First, a couple of stories that caught our eye and our ears. I was listening to Labour leader Ivana Bacic this week on Drive Time on RT Radio and she was talking about a new report that has found that domestic abuse in Ireland is a leading cause of homelessness, especially among women. And that report was published by the Mercy Law Resource Centre and it highlighted the difficulties around access to emergency and more long-term accommodation that victims can face when fleeing domestic violence. Bacic said the government was falling short of its obligations and made the point that legislators and those in government should look really closely at the recommendations in that report. So I hope that happens. And another story that caught her eye this week was a BBC report from Mexico where the Supreme Court has decriminalised abortion nationwide. So it's good to hear some positive news around women's reproductive rights when in some parts of the world things 
seem to be going backwards. The ruling in Mexico, which is, of course, a predominantly Catholic country of 130 million people, points to how nations in Latin America are taking a leading role in broadening abortion rights. And Rebecca Ramos, who's director of a leading abortion rights group that filed an injunction last year, against the Mexican regulation from 1931 that criminalised the procedure. She said this week, I'm very moved and very proud. This makes possible what we had not achieved in many years, which is that at least in certain institutions all across the country, legal and safe abortion services can be provided. So great to see that happening in Mexico and well done to all the activists there for all their hard work. In other news, I am going to see Barbie for the fourth time this week. I don't think I've ever gone to the cinema to see a film four times and I'm trying to figure it out. I just really like that film. It makes me happy in a world where there is a lot you could be unhappy about and depressed about and angry about, especially as a woman. Greta Gerwig's film about Barbie's feminism, Kennergy and all the rest just brings me joy. And I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually. It's just fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing it for the fourth time. I don't know if Anne Enright has seen Barbie even once. I didn't ask her, but we had a wonderful chat anyway about her fantastic new novel, The Wren, The Wren. If you are a book lover, as I am, a new Enright novel is always a source of celebration. She just has that incredible ability to pin down the human experience in ways that are familiar, moving and also always deeply thought provoking. This is another family saga. I just want to read you some of the things that have been said about The Wren, The Wren. It's a magnificent novel. Anne Enright's stylistic brilliance seems to put the reader directly in touch with her characters and the rich territory of their lives. That was from Sally Rooney, author of Normal People. A triumph. This is Enright's best novel since The Gathering and its absence from this year's Booker's long list is nothing less than a miscarriage of literary justice. Readers must find it and treasure it regardless. That was a review in The Sunday Times. And Margaret Atwood has said that these pages practically crackle with intelligence and compassion. Just to give you the story of the novel before I bring you our conversation, which does touch on that omission from the long list of the booker, which I personally found deeply surprising. Anyway, The Wren, The Wren is about three generations of women and the inheritance of trauma, but also about the inheritance of love and of wonder. The characters are Nell McDara, who never knew her grandfather, the celebrated Irish poet Phil McDara, but his love poems seem to speak directly to her. Restless and wryly self-assured, at 22, Nell leaves her mother Carmel's orderly home to find her own voice as a writer. She writes ghost blogs for an influencer, which is a very funny part of the story, and um, to live a poetical life. As she chases obsessive love, damage and transcendence in Dublin and beyond, her grandfather's poetry seems to guide her home. Nell's mother is a different kettle of fish. Carmel McDara knows the magic of her father's poetry too well, the kind of magic that makes women in their 90s slip outside for a kiss and then elope as her mother Terry did. In his poems to Carmel, Phil envisions his daughter as a bright-eyed wren ascending in escape from his hand. But it is Phil who departs, abandoning his wife and two young daughters. Carmel struggles to reconcile the poet with the father whose desertion scars her life, along with that of her fiercely dutiful sister and their gentle, cancer-ridden mother. To distance herself from this betrayal, Carmel turns inward, raising Nell, her daughter, and her one trusted love, alone. 
The Ren the Ren brings to life three generations of Magdara women who must contend with inheritances of all kinds, of poetic wonder and of abandonment by a man who is lauded in public but who is carelessly selfish at home. Their other stronger inheritance is a sustaining love that is more than a strand of DNA, as Anne Enright puts it, but a rope thrown from the past, a fat twisted rope full of blood. This is, as the blurb says, sharp prose strutted with crystalline poetry. Anne Enright masterfully braids a family story of longing, betrayal and hope. I fully agree with that endorsement. I loved this book and I loved talking to Anne because... She's just a literary rock star, I suppose. I think she was called that once in the Irish Times anyway, back in the day. And uh, she's now the author of seven novels, most recently Actress. She has been awarded the Man Booker Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Irish Book Awards. She lives in Dublin with her husband and two children. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Anne Enright, delighted to have you back in the studio. We had you on before, but it was a live podcast with Cathy Sheridan from the Abbey Stage, you might remember. I do remember it well, February 2020. These were the days, the weeks before everything went. Yeah, and we kind of had vague intimations in the corner of our eye. And I'm going, ah, China, what? (laughs) Italy, that doesn't matter. Wuhan, what? The 20th of February 2020. And I like the date. It had a nice kind of ring to it. And I loved the event. It was so nice to be in Liberty Hall with Cathy mm. on stage. Uh, brilliant audience and on we go. And then bang. <laughs> it's like I was in America and the tour I was on, which is fairly closely planned, was falling apart just day by day. And I was due to go into the Harvard bookshop in Harvard Square. Um, and I realised that Boston Biotech were a mile down the road. <laughs> <laughs> looking it up and I said why am I going towards <laughs> this disease so this it all infection. had to be abandoned and you yeah. had to come home long drive home with a very coffee driver um, and a plane full of white anxious anxious faces and at which point then like the rest of us all locked down and many 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 walks up Cliney Hill yeah I wish I was doing it now actually <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a great would it be a great day to do yeah, it yeah lovely bit of weather yeah yeah. Um, I was doing the plod you know I was putting one foot in front of the other so and if you ever went out in a car which I sometimes had to go to my mother's and you'd see everyone out walking it was really nice and scary at the same time so I went up Kalani Hill uh, uh, day by day and, and the spring, that beautiful, still, uh, strange, beautiful weather we had in April. Um, and the spring started, the sap started to rise and, <laughs> and, and the plants all did what they ever they needed to do. And I found it immensely moving and significant and melancholy. And the sap started to rise in you in I terms suppose. of this new book, The Wren, yeah. The Wren. Yeah, I mean, there was, I was going home and reading poetry and I was going home and reading Irish poetry about little dead birds and having a little cry about little <laughs> dead birds from the 9th century or the 12th century. That wonderful book on doing or poems of the dispossessed, uh, translated by Thomas Kinsella. So it just felt like the everythingness of everything was upon us all. Mm. And it felt a little bit like adolescence, where everything oh. feels momentous and... Significant. Um, so I started, yeah, I had a character called Carmel, um, or at least I had her, her her problem in my head. And I didn't really want to be writing Carmel, to be honest, because she's a kind of tough-minded person. And it was a tough-minded time. 
Um, but we wanted to pull out of it somehow. So between those, the poetry and the kind of get on with it, they get on with it, mm. the get over yourself of Carmel. Yeah. Which is very Irish yeah. style. It can, be, so. it can be too harsh. You don't necessarily want it in, um, you know, a maternity nurse or something like that. <laughs> no. And, and, and you can get it sometimes. Are you, are you a get, over, get on with it, get over it? Like Carmel's very much like that. There's one bit where we could talk about the different characters, but her daughter Nell is telling her about a friend of hers who has anxiety. Yeah. And I love Carmel's response. It's just like, she just sounds like she's stupid. What's wrong with her? <laughs> yeah, she thinks the plane is going to drop out of the sky. And Carmel says, but the plane isn't going to drop out of the sky. And, and, she, and, and her daughter says, yeah, well, she knows that. And Carmel says, well, that's just stupid. Why do we have to do what's stupid? People, uh, you know, you have to. Everyone has to do what I say now because I'm really thick. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I'm. Yeah, I, I, there is a. Yeah, I mean that balance between practicality and pragmatism, and uh, toughness is one that is. Uh, I'm interested in for sure. I'm interested in kind of how we imagine and project, and and if you take that away and look at things very simply, and you say, well this isn't the big problem you think it is. It's just a simple problem, actually. Mm. Get out of bed. (laughs) Or whatever it is, you know. Say if you're looking at any of those things that we all suffer from procrastination, whatever it is, you kind of unpack it a bit. And I am interested in unpacking it and I am interested in what is practically at at the base of it. But if you live your life on that practical level all the time, you're depriving yourself of wonderful uh, escapes and wonderful transcendence, but also uh, empathy for other people. Mm. So it's not a compassionate way forward. Mm. So tell us about the three voices in the book. So Carmel is one that get over it kind of. Yeah, get on with it. Uh, get on with it. Her daughter, who's this 20 something Insta, uh, she she writes copy for an influencer, which is a fascinating job. And really, in- you do that so well, I have to say. Okay. It's brilliant. Okay. <laughs> I loved her voice. And um, then there's Phil. So maybe you can talk us through. Yeah, Phil is dead. That's the first thing about Phil. But he's a ghost over through with the whole thing, isn't he? So he's not actually a character. He's a kind of series of texts. And those texts are his poems. Um, And his poems are in the Irish lyric tradition. And they go back to the ninth century. And they are about dead births. Um, And they have that lovely lyrical reach, that interest in nature. um, And all that kind of loveliness that Irish poetry can convey. Uh, He's not... Uh, and some of the bitterness too, you know, there's kind of a bit of uh, the satire of Louis McNeese in there and some of uh, Michael Hartnett's translations from O'Bruder, these curse poems and invectives. So he's not all simply lovely on the page, but he's uh, not lovely at all really in life, I suppose. Or He's, 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 he's so in pursuit of his own loveliness <laughs> that, that he leaves his family behind. So yeah. Carmel is the daughter of that family. And that's where her kind of tough mindedness really kicks in. Whatever is going on with her mind. I'm more and more interested in the idea that people have different styles of brain, apart from, of, of ways of thinking now. It's not all psychology. Anyway, whatever that little child Carmel was yeah. becomes a kind of closed down at that moment when her father leaves. And then she has sort of by, almost by accident I suppose is the way to say uh, she gets pregnant oh accidentally on purpose <laughs> actually it's more like on purpose accidentally yeah yeah. Um, yeah she decides that she's going to have a child on her own that men are in general disappointing and so she's not going to hand over her most yeah. precious thing to any man and so she has her, her baby on her own and Which, this is Nell who we talked about and that's the wonderful Nell yeah because the book is very much about the the dynamic between 
yeah. yell at her as well. And you, you, those family mother daughter things, you're, you're fascinated by them. They always they're always there somewhere. I think in your work. Yeah, I mean, I head into it again. I think, oh no, <laughs> you know, oh no. Um, no but they're all, they're all different. They're all different. Okay, because. One thing is not often enough said. Women who have children are just people who have children, okay? They're not turned into this samey, samey thing called mama, okay? No, They're I all individuals. can attest to that from being on many WhatsApp groups with many mothers who are all uh, having different styles of... Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just that they are different people, they have different ways of bringing children up. Yes. And, and, and also, the thing I liked about Nell and, the, and, the, and that liking really carries into the book, I think, is... That astonishing fact that the, that children come out as themselves. <laughs> so from the day they're born and you look at them and say, oh, oh there you are now. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. Completely different to the last one I had. <laughs> you know, whatever it is yeah. that their personality. So that it is an interaction as much as, a, a, mm. you know, it's more of an interaction than perhaps you think. And I think it's lovely that they have a good relationship, I would say. I mean, would you agree or not? Do you think they... Ha- they I, have I, an abiding... Nell I knows, liked it, like. I, I yeah, it yeah, yeah, it's quite real at the end. Yeah, um, yeah. Carmel's kind of hard to get away from for Nell and it's uh, made worse or made more difficult or made be, by the fact that the relationship isn't triangulated with a, a, a father figure. Hmm. So it's just that dyadic, uh, you know, it's face-to-face, basically, and and she's trying to turn away... And get into her own life, you know. And for it's interesting that for Nell, the poetry of her grandfather is much more sort of real in a way and much more present than Carmel, who's kind of, you know, because of the way he she he treated her and treated the family, she's kind of rejected this yeah. figure in the life. Well, the problem with the poetry and his reputation is the fact that he's considered wonderful robs his daughters of the ability to be cross, properly cross. So they're not, they can't hate him properly. They can't feel properly betrayed Mm. because he's continuing to write this beautiful stuff. And that's seen as more important in society's eyes than his relationship with his children. Mm. So they're sidelined and their emotions are sidelined. So Carmel just doesn't just doesn't do it. Yeah, she just doesn't isn't going to go there. Nell thinks her mother's the most boring creature who ever walked. <laughs> dull, dull, dull. How, how, you know, she's made boredom her first occupation, says Nell. Mm-hmm. And there's Phil with these gorgeous, lovely poems that comfort her when she's sad. Mm-hmm. And she says, how did my family go from wonderful to dull in what, a single generation? <laughs> You know? He reminds me of, I don't know, you've probably been to Grogan's quite a bit, but you know the way sometimes you're in Grogan's? and I have or I haven't. You have, I imagine you have. have you, you imagine. I don't um, know, I have this idea of you that, that you've spent many an hour <laughs> in Grogan's, no? Am I wrong? I wasn't a, an habitué. Okay. I went there recently. Yeah, oh, really? I met Bobby Bala uh, in this, yeah. <laughs> okay, well I imagine you like sort of been there a lot, a lot. but I've been there occasionally. And I was there a lot when Tommy was the barman. He, yes, I remember that's, that's kind Tommy. of when I would have yeah. gone there. And I remember getting into conversations with sometimes poets, people like, I would say like Phil, but not as success, successful as Phil. But I felt it was a very real character. You know, these sort of people who are just very um, full of ego and full of the sense of their own self and uh, boring. I find him, I found him. You found Phil boring? Yeah, 
In what way did you just find that I just boring? don't like? I didn't like him. I suppose I'm not boring. I just didn't like him as a uh, as a character because of the way he was. Because of that, yeah, two sided thing. Yeah. Look at me and this brilliant, you know, man and, and world renowned. And he goes off and he finds another wife. You know, if yeah. that's not if that's okay to don't be too spoilery. About yeah, yeah, it, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and then on the other side, his he's all the things that say a poet who th- cares about things should care about doesn't. You know, or somebody who's artistic or claims to you know, be lyrical and yeah. and appreciate beauty when it's right there in front of him in form of his own children or yeah. his own wife yeah. doesn't find them. So I suppose in the way that you would want me to feel about him in a way, probably. Yeah, or the way that Carmel might feel about him. Yeah, probably. I probably but, was. Uh, you know, I mean, I've been asked questions about the, the you know, the male monster yeah. uh, artist and, um, and the narcissist, male narcissist yeah. monster artist. And, you know, Carmel... Uh, Phil does what artists do. He 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 feels he has to do this thing, make mm. these 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 pieces of work, and he feels that the world might be interested in them. And for Carmel, that's an astonishing claim on the world's attention. Okay, because mm. she's a get over yourself sort of person. <laughs> yeah. She's a who'd want to read what you're writing sort of person. And so she, I, I mean, I didn't over-egg that, but I mean, she would have clamped down on all of that in her own life. She wouldn't expect anything from anyone. And I think that's kind of. Tragic as well, you know. Mm. He's he's a violent man as well. He's an aimlessly, chaotically violent man, yeah. yeah an anguished man. I he's think not a manipulative, deliberate... He, he doesn't engage in deliberate cruelty. No, but violence is kind of part of his language yeah. in, in terms of reacting to things. I mean, there's this great thing about Austin Clark having this review of Poetry Review in the Irish Times. Yeah. <laughs> Every Saturday they have to ha- kind of hide the paper, yes, because in case his reaction to it, because they that, don't know what they're going to do. That page is amazing. <laughs> so you go back into the I archive. Go and look at it, you know, if you're looking reading. up John McGarren, original kind of uh, all, all the. <laughs> if you're looking up what people thought at the time yeah. for controversies that still uh, mean something to us, there's Austin Clark at the top left hand corner, having an opinion about poetry every single week, and we knew his house it was in Temple Oak. It was mm. on the bridge in Temple Oak. Um, and so it was known as uh, the house of a poet. Okay, I mean, Martin yeah. Giron was also uh, uh, nearby and that was another house of a poet in, in my childhood. Um, and yeah, no, uh, Phil uh, gets incensed and throws, hurls a discus of dried cow manure out the window <laughs> of Austin Clark's house in Temple Oak on the bridge. <laughs> He's going up the daughter. Yeah, so, well, actually, if you go back a little bit further, Phil has his own account yeah. of life in 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 the countries in mm. in outside growing up outside Tullamore, and that world celebrates violence. There's a lot of violence against animals in the book, mm. if anybody, um, yeah, um, and purposely so. Uh, there are also some lovely relationships with animals in the book for later on, but so that's the kind of wellspring from which the rest of the violence in the book arises, and Phil's mother. Is a school teacher, and he says she goes off, and her arm grows grows lean in the beating of children that were not her own. You kind of think that just violence was general, you mm. know, that so and and not even across Ireland, not notable. Mm. You know, it was a, it was a kind of throwaway joke, um, and in Carmel's generation, it's the violence is slightly comical, and of course for children, it's always your fault if you get in the way of the violent. Of the hitting, yeah. you know, if you hit at school, what did you do? That 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 kind of thing. Mm. So he kind of flails around, and they think it's like the weather. You just have to stay out of his way. Yeah. And uh, but then when it arrives in the current moment, we see it very very starkly. Very, it's a kind mm. of a tragic moment in the book. It's a moment of astonishing rupture. 
I won't give any any more away. No, but let's talk about but the... But we see it for what it is, you know? Yeah. Not what a, it really not is. Not a joke. Not trivialised, not, not kind of just something incidental. Yeah. And then I suppose some party says... Actually, somebody asked, wasn't it better when we didn't but when we didn't mind? <laughs> like, when we could reduce it to just like just after. Ashley or Grant, uh, get on, with, get on yeah. with it. Get over yourself. So the other thread of violence in it would be with Nell, the young woman. So she's a 20-something woman. It's, yeah. she, I, I love, as I said, I love her voice. She kind of reminds me of someone I might encounter in a Sally Rooney novel and that's a massive compliment and I hope Thank you, you very much. take it like that because I did when I started reading her. I was like, because she starts off and I just get the name right, but Going back to what you were saying about different psychologies, she starts talking about this Russell T. Hurlbert, the psychologist. And I thought it was a great way to set up her voice because what he essentially finds is that people are different and they think differently. (laughs) And of course, that's what a novel is. You're showing us all these people thinking differently about things and having different perspectives. But she's a really fascinating young woman because she's very, very smart. Yeah. Um, she's but she's also doing this writing copy for this influencer which is a really interesting job and she's kind of lost as well um, what was your inspiration for her or where did you come from kind of I know some people have said to you like oh writing this very young woman but of course you can write anything because you're a novelist you can write any characters of any age but yeah. she's a very contemporary young woman yeah like, there, there, there's, there's funny reactions right uh, one is how would you know about young people and they're, they're, young people are quite territorial <laughs> about their lives oh, yeah because I mean it's it's axiomatic to the young that they might not be understood oh, by yeah, their yeah, elders yeah, yeah, yeah. but I have never been old and nobody's surprised if you're write an old character yes, why yeah. would they you know of course you know what it is to be yeah. old but actually I have been young <laughs> so uh, so it's not a foreign country to mm. me um, I mean I suppose you've got kids so, around the same yeah, age as well or I, similar ages yeah they they don't line up exactly but they have that kind of online ease so they're not even the Facebook generation my kids they're the Snapchat generation mm. so they they were over the first panic of uh, how 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 d- damaging it could be, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, not still there. I sort of feel we're still in that. Yeah, phase. they're actually more savvy if you okay. give them. Oh, that's good to know, hear. Yeah, I hope. Mm. I hope touching all the wood. Yeah. So so that kind of way of talking. I I, I was. I'm, I mean, I'm a writer. I'm I'm interested in people going being brief or going on at length. So I'm interested. Nail has a kind of cadence. She writes short pieces. Um, but also I've been reading a lot of young women over the last few years and writing about them. And so people like Sally Rooney, but also Megan Nolan, yeah. uh, Miranda Popke in America and, uh, uh, and some others are talking about, um, I think actually there's an article in the Irish Times today about messy millennials mm. having bad relationships. And I suppose it's a time of life where having bad relationships is... Part of part of the experience that's you know it's part of the learning curve. Everybody's blundering around mm. to a certain extent. Um, it's much more kind of formalized now with kind of the feeling of things being of a scene and people being online and yeah. whatever. So you worry about them, I suppose. I thought um, it was really because I've spoken to some young people in the last couple of years, young women particularly about their sex lives, right? And a lot of what you have in there in this really horrible relationship she has with a guy called Phelan who I would just punch in the head if I ever saw him in Grogan yeah, for example. Yeah, he's a bit tall, Roisin. Oh, he's a bit it's too tall. A bit I'm tall. very short. Yeah. I wouldn't get near him. But anyway, he's just this guy who you just want to kill anyway. And and she, 
there's this um, violent sex that goes on. There's kind of, you know, very coercive stuff, but just almost like that um, Nell is kind of a bit complicit in it too, or is sort of playing, is in that dance with him. And it's it's very well done, I have to say. So complicit is a word that I've been avoiding. Okay. Is um, complicit the wrong word, probably? Uh, it, it begs uh, too many questions. Okay. For me, bec- uh, but I mean... You kind of want to shout at her to say, get out it. of that. She, she's yeah. there for it, yeah. She's yeah. there for it. Mm. Uh, one male interviewer said, but she's she's kind of into it, right? Oh, no, I, d- <laughs> I didn't mean that, by the way. But sorry, she also I, is. Sorry, Nell. I didn't <laughs> sorry, mean that. But... Actually, by the end of that first section, which was yeah. emotionally incredibly sort of wrenching to for me to write, by the end, it either works, it's like a, a switch that's flicked, so it's kind of binary, so it either works or it's t- it just doesn't work at all. Mm. Or it worked for two seconds and then it stops working, which I think is true enough to what I've read. Uh, I suppose what I was getting at was that young people that I've spoken to, young women particularly, are expecting this kind of choking stuff to go on in sex, that they they understand that they're uh, in a heterosexual situation, that their male partner is going to have been influenced by this porn culture, that these things are going to be coming up when they go to have sex. And it really scared me or shocked me about the normalisation of it because I thought we'd kind of, you know, as women kind of come to a place where we were going to be doing what we wanted in in the bedroom or whatever and there wouldn't be this kind of... It's It feels almost as if there's something else going on where that there's a dominance that's happening more behind closed doors and that's being accepted a little bit by younger women as part of the deal. And I don't know if that's that's a very sweeping statement, but I've, I've really... No, you're completely right. I mean, it is kind of concerning. So if you see damage being played out sexually, you kind of think, well, it, it, it's not good for either damaged party to, 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 to go to the dark side like that. Mm. But for men, it's hugely reinforced by several hundred million websites. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So it is the women who are out on their own in that. It's not really a partnership of damage um, or a mutuality of destruction. However, things like doomed love and mutual destruction go back forever. Ah, yeah. That's old school. As, we know that. But it's just playing out in different ways, isn't it? And, and it's playing out in, in different ways in different spaces. Now, the thing about Phelan, if you read between the lines, which I hope people do, yes, okay. because my characters aren't, you know, are seen by other characters yeah, of so, course. It's Nell's version of So Phelan sits there and says, at one stage, what are we doing? I know, and babe. She, babe. And she's like, she what can... do you think? What? What do you, what do you think you're for, as it were? Yeah. Um, but also you can uh, you probably ascertain he's got an online problem. Yeah. Um, and that it's affecting his performance. Which a lot of young men do. And it's a, I don't know another, what the numbers are. No, I think it's quite high. I think there's a lot of people. I don't know the numbers either, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely an issue. You see, that's... When I say I don't know what the numbers are, these are really interesting fictional spaces. Mm. And that's me saying, what's the reality? What is the reality? Yeah. Uh, I know you see you see uh, articles and accounts from guys, too few, um, mm. who are kind of pulling away from that, that kind of yeah. scene in their lives. Phelan goes on, or she intuits that he's going to go on to have a family and be nice or nice enough. Yeah, maybe he will. Maybe he will. It's the brother, she says, you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to worry about. <laughs> There's one brother who looks like a psycho. But I and that actually is, a, you know, with Phil as well. Phelan is more deliberate, but these men are more anguished than um, manipulative. Hmm. Anguished than manipulative, yeah. That's well, Phelan just doesn't really think about it properly. I think. I know, but I I don't know. I, I think you're being very kind to Phelan. There's a bit where he he's from the countryside and he gets her to go to the christening of his brother's baby. Yeah, but he, yeah. he says, get in the car, wear something nice, wear heels. Like a lot of what he does is just very, you yeah. know, not very 
nice or kind or it's just dismissive of her like disrespectful yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not just in a sexual way it's in the general yeah well she's a status kind of chick for him yeah yeah not fond of Phelan no we're not fond of Phelan but uh, that's okay not fond of <laughs> Phil either but very fond of Carmel I'm now. kind of fond of Phil uh, yeah actually, actually well let's talk about Phil then because you had to become a poet to write this book you write yeah. Phil's poems but I am it's very hard to write characters without forgiving them. Of course, yes, yeah. you have to. You have I to don't have complex. to because I, no. I can just read it. And, no, yeah. and, and part of the whole kind of narrative suspense is if, if the character you're on board for, like Nell or Carmel, starts to go wrong, you can yeah. say, please don't, <laughs> yeah. please don't. And that's like a big kind of narrative push. That's what we say during horror movies, basically. Don't, yeah, and there is one the part room. where Carmel goes a bit wrong, yeah. very wrong, yeah. and it's very disturbing. And hard. Yeah. Uh, I know yeah. it was hard for you to read the audio book. I think that's what you were saying to someone recently. Was that was that bit you were talking about? Yeah, it was. It? Yeah, yeah. I can I can understand it because I just read it again today, and I was I was like, I don't want to say anything about it because the reader will get to read the book. But um, I read it again and was struck today how powerful it is, especially because we're rooting for her as exactly. a mother. We're rooting for her as a person in the world yeah. who's who's gone and had this child on her own, who's doing something quite... Loves the child to bits. Yeah, yeah. loves the child to bits and has done it despite all society's expectations yeah. and judgments. There's a bit of that in And then she, yeah. because she's still her father's uh, daughter. daughter, you know, and it comes through there in that moment. But, um, yeah, but talk about Phil then. Well, I have and I like you Phil. said you're fond with him, but also you had to become a poet to, the thing to write about the Phil, book. And the thing about <laughs> Phil's poetry is that it's a reach. It's a reach for something higher. <laughs> it's a reach for... You're laughing. Something higher, <laughs> something more beautiful, something transcending, something lovely. It's a reach, okay? So where you're reaching from is always a good question. And he reaches from somewhere quite lowly. Uh, you know, he grew, grows up in a thatched house, which we now consider cute, but they considered unhealthy. Um, two-room house. Mm. Everyone's sleeping in the same bed. God knows what went on. Um, and so he's escaping from very lowly beginnings and making them beautiful and making them noble. And that was part of our post-colonial project to make the lives of yeah. the of impoverished, colonised people beautiful mm. and noble and heroic. So, so that's the reach. That is the reach. But also, what about your reach of having to write poetry? Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, having not done it. I mean, you obviously appreciate poetry for a long time. Yeah, I was years. very quiet about it. I mean, I don't kind of swoon. <laughs> you know, I don't sort of take down a slim volume to swoon. <laughs> um, I, I, I have had poetry with me all my life as, you know, a companion uh, more than anything else. And so I suppose when it came to it, I knew more than I admitted to myself that I knew. But I felt like a complete imposter. And so I'd write, I wrote something that looked like a poem, but I didn't think it was a poem. Um, <laughs> and that, I mean, whatever that is. So I, I reached out, as they say. Yes, they do say that, don't they? Yeah. Reached out. They, they shouldn't say it, but they do. Yeah, well, I did reach out <laughs> okay. uh, to some poets I knew, uh, Paul Perry in UCD and Jane Clark and Jessica Trainer, and, 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 you know, Jessica said, yeah, it's a poem. You needed a confirmation. Yeah, so I suddenly understood the confidence gap that I see every day with people who say, I wish I could write, usually women. Um, and I understood what that confidence gap was, mm. that they think there's some magic involved. I always say that, um, or I wondered what they thought writing was. Was it like flying or something? So I say, you know, you bi you're building an airplane. You're not turning yourself into a bird, OK? <laughs> it's like it's a mechanical, you know. That, you know I, so I tried to just damp down that feeling of, 
you know, the whoosh, sacred kind of text or the sacred, the other, the unreachable. And thing. yet you had that uh, about poetry and a bit. And in I did. And yeah. I understood it then fully. Yeah. And then by the end, a couple of times I just wrote one. Ooh, just, just wrote a poem. <laughs> Which is a great sign. Yeah. yeah. And so have you totally decided that's not, the, the sacred thing is gone from poetry now? I mean, as in not saying that you don't appreciate it, but that it's the same as it's writing and it's just in another form. You know? um, well, I'm interested in, I mean, I'm interested in the ideas of the sacred, but, um, and yeah, I think that kind of, I'd be a little bit intimidated by the amount of expertise around poetry. Mm. Um, and uh, it's also about sincerity. I don't know what I'd write a poem about. Yeah, I'd be interested to know your your uh, you writing a poem as you, not as Phil. Yeah, would be no, interesting. I mean, I did write a poem up uh, basically from from Kalani Hill about ferns. And oh yeah, everything. okay. And I decided it was to me and not enough Phil. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've been reading a couple of poems recently by Pat Inglesby. Do you remember Pat Inglesby? I do. And he has just some amazing poems. I don't know if you like his work at all, but... It's a real blast. For, yeah, yeah, remember because he was on the he telly. Is, he'd be Pat's on the telly and he'd be on the street. He'd be on the street, you'd see yeah. him. I, think I don't think I've read them in a... You, you know, should have, have a look at them. They're just yeah. very... I mean, a lot of them are just about people that he meets on the street or, you know, but they're... I suppose what I, what I bring him up is because we can have this lofty idea of poetry, like it has to have certain sort of a feel that has to be very, yeah, yeah. highfalutin with a yeah. want of a better expression, but it can also be very earthy and down to earth. Sure. Poetry, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I don't know what kind of poet I would be if yeah, I was I wonder that poet. what poet you'd be. I think there is a funny. range of options. I think you'd There's be funny and a bit, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I had somebody break up some of my paragraphs into lines once. It was very disconcerting, you know, and write them out as poems. And I thought, well, you have to you have to move on to another writer now. <laughs> the National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Let's go back a bit, Anne, actually, to your childhood, if that's okay. Because um, yeah, I, I, what reminded me was, because um, I was listening to your Desert Island Discs. Uh, yeah. Your brilliant, brilliant programme that you did with that. I mean, that's such an honour to get on that, first of all. Did you feel like that when it you... It was such a moment, yeah. Yeah, when you got the call. We would yeah. like you to come on. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it. That's the definitive you have... 
you're successful, isn't it? Well, that, that's what the publicist said. Well, it's true. Yeah, I it's think. like we don't have to do anything else. But now. you were talking about at because um, it was so interesting to hear about how precocious you were as a child, having read every yeah. children's book in the library by the time you were seven. Yeah, and then went on to the adult. I were reading Joyce and all of that. I think yeah. your first Joyce at fourteen or something like that. And I hadn't really known all that about you actually before. And then you got a scholarship at sixteen to Canada. Yeah. Whereupon you had a teacher, a, a poetry teacher called Theo, I think. Yeah, an English teacher called Theo. And you showed him your ghastly poetry, so that's where I was going. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so it's funny, you you know, that's Too well researched, poetry. Roshan. Oh, well, you know. I tried. did. <laughs> I have those still somewhere. Oh, now what are they like? What, are they, what is that ghastly poetry? Uh, like you should have brought one in today. That would have been good. Yeah, <laughs> like, they're... they're <laughs> <laughs> wow, my ghastly poetry. I suppose they were love poems, I suppose. Uh, and actually I've incorporated a f- one or two little things that I that remained from when I was 17 into subsequent books. I've taken some phrases from it. <gasps> my goodness. Mm. Yeah, I must have a look. Maybe I think I- you should have a look. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see. The other couple of things, you're the youngest of five, right? Yeah. So, and family dynamics are so important in all of your books, yes. as we know. And there was two things that stood out for me about what you've said about uh, the, your siblings gave you a typewriter. They did. I think, at some point. They also gave you a book of Leonard Cohen's poetry called Flowers for Hitler. I did, yeah, that so was what, a big joke. That, that yeah. was a big joke. That was my 13th birthday. Um, yeah. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't a joke. That's maybe what I'm thinking. But maybe I was taking myself very seriously. What a great present. But do they encur- they obviously then encouraged you in your What's writerly pursuits? It was pursuits. one of those, you know, robust Irish families. I mean, you didn't quite know if they were encouraging you or laughing at you. So, yeah, yeah. And is be- was being uh, the youngest of five, obviously, it must have influenced very much the fact that you write about families so much. I mean, that's, if we think of the gathering, we think of all the lo- families are very big well, in your stories. Well, the thing stories. about Irish families, and again, I don't know what the the figures are, but we tend to stay in them. We're a very family-based culture. So it was hard. It's hard for me to think outside of the family mm. uh, one way or the other, that people are connected in this way, whether they want to be or not. Yeah. So that kind of feeling of connection and separation is really key to, you know, what Forster said in the novel, only connect, you know, how, how it, it, so it's a really good shorthand for your characters <laughs> as mm. well. It's a good stage but all my families are different. Um, all your siblings are different. No, all the oh, all my all my in the book. fictional yeah, yeah, yeah. families are so different. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So and also in Ireland, you know, your family has to put up with the fact that you're right. And How they, do they cope with it? They do it very graciously. Do I, they? I really have to say, yeah, no, they're kind of amazing. Because people would say, oh, are you in that? Are you on the cover of that book? You know, <laughs> they say no. <laughs> she made that up, and then. I kind of fix the problem more or less by having so many different families in the books that people now and society is much more open and people are not as kind of pokey as they used to be, maybe. Pokey. Be, that's yeah, they'd be poking and saying, is that you in that book? <laughs> you know, so they're not as, they just have a bit more kind of. Uh, more relaxed about it. Yeah, exactly. And, and talking about the mother-daughter dynamics, what was your dynamic with your mother? Well, my mother, uh, I think one of the key things you have to say about um, family dynamics and family pathologies is that uh, the families I write about in The Gathering and in The Green Road have an unchanging 
uh-ness about them, that they they are fixed in whatever their difficulty is. Um, and that is the difference between a more or less healthy family and a more or less unhealthy family. So my mother is incredibly elderly now. She's 95. And how is she? She's, um, uh, she hasn't been mobile for a long time. So we've, we've, you know, the last decade has been really, we've been in an elder care situation. And you kind of think how that alters your perspective on these relationships. You know what I mean? So it's so it is really radically changed from from uh, from when you're young mm. and, and 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 writer no individuals people who are interested in themselves as individuals might fix a moment in their past and say this is what it was like okay so it might be a moment of grievance or it might be a moment of joy mm. but actually I've been you know sixty years in the same family and it isn't the same with when when somebody is in their nineties as it was mm. when. You know, and, you know, so my teens were stormy enough. Were they? They were indeed. Uh, was that because you were a rebel and you didn't I was want a rebel, to conform? Yeah. And I didn't conform. And also Ireland was changing in ways that seemed absolutely kind of apparent to everyone mm. except your parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even you at 16, you went to Canada and you met someone who didn't believe in God and you were like flabbergasted. Absolutely so amazing. He also uh, believed in, in uh, nudist bathing. Oh. Yeah, no, the two things are indelibly connected <laughs> in my mind. He became a leading environmentalist um, um, and died last year, sadly. Oh, yeah. Okay, you kept in touch? No, I just, oh, I just know picked up name. the news. He was in Newsweek. Okay, we became a famous environmentalist in his way. Anyway, but, so, so despite so, do you think going to Canada and, and being exposed to the godless naked uh, yeah. people uh, was he wasn't naked when he well, said, yeah. in this conversation was, or ever? Uh, I was never was, exposed to his. Which told you he likes to be <laughs> naked with other people <laughs> with his family. Okay, with his family, really <laughs> bad. But did that? Uh, how much impact did that experience have on you? Do you think in terms of coming back and being non-conformist and all of that, or were you already on the on the way? Oh no, I was very much on the way, uh, and I was very. Uh, very headstrong um, and very strongly strong in my opinions and also as time proved more or less right <laughs> yeah um, so I mean my mother was at that stage very Catholic um, my father not so much um, and so there was that moral panic basically mm. more or less yeah um, which was a panic and it wasn't based on anything real or yeah, yeah. you know whatever so, and, and the storminess, was that from that? Was that your mum's expectations? So that would have of, come, no, that probably would have come later. Um, yeah, she wanted conforming. She wanted conforming to happen. She was terrified of non-conforming, actually. And how did you sort of um, not live up to that? Like, what was the worst thing you did, would you say? Um, I can't remember, Roshan. <laughs> I can't remember. At 16, nothing too bad, I don't think. Yeah. But as you got older, there was there was moments, I suppose, clashes with her and things that happened. There would have been later on, yeah. Yeah, when I came home from Canada, I was very full of myself and I knew everything. <laughs> I mean, I knew everything before I left. Yeah, I was just going to say. But when you, I came you back... You read every bloody book in the library. I so knew, I was everything like, knew everything squared, you know. So, <laughs> she, yeah. So were, were you kind of insufferable to uh, some people? I, yeah, I, don't, I, I suppose I was, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Insufferable. I was young. And you, what age were you when you went to Trinity then? So I would have been 18. Okay. And I love the story of you meeting your husband. 
And yeah. I feel like it's he was sort English. of a start of a there's novel. A, there's, a, there's, um, at the, there's an Englishman at the end of this book. <laughs> at the end of the end. No, very nice Englishman. A very nice I Englishman. I liked him a lot. Yes, he's, he's a decent person. Mm. And uh, but, but Carmel isn't very keen on English people. So I did take that from my mother. She, didn't, she couldn't believe I brought home an Englishman <laughs> on top of everything. You but, know? but Carmel warms to this guy, so it's nice. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so so very my mother. quickly. <laughs> Well, tell us about she meeting, was right to meeting Martin in Trinity. See, that's the thing about these these things. People get, get people move, people change. It's, uh, you know, if you give them a chance, I suppose. Yeah, I met Martin in, in my fir- my first year in Trinity, his second year in Trinity. So we were in players, spent our uh, all our life in the theatre, uh, having a brilliant time, like working all the hours. I mean, we still work all the hours, but. Um, it was fun. And you auditioned for him. He was directing a play. He was. He I want you to directing. tell me the story because I just love it so much. Yeah, I don't tell it that often, <laughs> I suppose. So he was directing a play called The Freshers Co-op, which sound, I didn't know what that meant, but a fresher is a first year in Trinity and the co-op was a, a cooperative production. Okay. So lo- you, you were guaranteed to get a part. Anyway, I... I auditioned for the part of Mrs. Brandywine, a neurotic housewife who is worried about her floorboards. And um, he wrote on his notes the word bingo. With an exclamation <laughs> yeah, mark. Yeah, big exclamation mark. Yeah. Did that feature in the wedding speeches and all of it that? It did, actually, I think, Good. yeah. Because it's so... So we didn't get married. I don't know how many. It took us ages to get married. And then it took us ages again to have kids. So we were not... It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't... Done and dusted. But bingo sort of sums it up, though, obviously, the impression you made. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to make that impression on somebody, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> bingo. Bingo. That's kind of... That's. Um, would he have said that was sort of a love at first sight? I know it was bingo about she's perfect for God, the part. I think I have his phone number if you want to ring him and ask him. <laughs> OK, I might do that after. Um, <laughs> sure, it's here on my phone and somewhere. And then you, you went off to, to university in England to... <laughs> tell, to tell me what he says. I will, I'll tell yeah. you. I'll, I'll let you know later on. Um... <laughs> You went off to university, East Anglia yeah, University, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it didn't go so well. And it was only when you started to write short stories that everything. So I went off. I yeah. went off and I left Ireland and I left everything. And I think that was kind of one of the factors. If you look at it kind of environmentally, mm. I was on my own in England. Yeah. You know, no money and no kind of idea of where I was trying to write the great, the great novel, <laughs> not the great Irish novel, Roisin <laughs> You can laugh, but Ireland was too small for I the know, greatness I of my novel that I was writing. <laughs> In 1986, yeah. Because it was very, it was on a few different continents. Planets, continents, planets, worlds, planets, whatever. Languages. Languages. Well, 18th century, well, sort of 18th century uh, dialogue. Yeah, there was a whole, there was going to be a book in that. Amazing. But that book never. No, no, no. So you came back home. Actually, I have students book. now and sometimes they wander off on a huge figari, you know, in the middle of their book. And I wonder whether I should call them back and say, could you just get back to that nice scene at the and kitchen table? I kind of reassure them and say, no, you have to get it out of your system. It's going to be fine. OK. But yeah. I won't, I don't, I don't ever tell students what to do, which makes them very frustrated because they want They want me. you to tell yeah, them that. Yeah. So, but they can live through that frustration and, and, and find their own way. And, and that's all good. And you just realised yourself that this incredibly um, expansive novel just wasn't going to work. Well, uh, you know, I became sort of incapacitated. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I was living in a room where all the notes for this novel, all it was like a, you know, <laughs> it was like a, it was all crouching in on you. Yeah, it was like, it was like oh. a scene in, in a horror movie where you <laughs> Anyway, 
the, the walls were covered with plot points in different coloured biro and marker. And I was up all night. I wrote from 8pm to 4 in the morning. I wasn't eating. I took no exercise. No, didn't see fresh air. I just went off the bip altogether. So you're like doing that tortured artist kind of thing. I did, thing. yeah. And you were only like in your... In my early 20s, 20s yeah. yeah. And so it just wasn't compatible with a healthy existence, it sounds like. No, I mean, now we know that yeah. that's not the way to look after yourself mm. one way or the other. So. But then you didn't really know. No. And you thought you were on the right path that you should be on to a degree, like yeah. artistically. Well, I, I, was making, I was making my ground statement, yeah. Yeah. And then when you came home, things clicked more with your writing. I came home and I went up to Anna McCarrick. Um, oh, God. Uh, the Toronto Guthrie okay. Centre in Anna McCarrick. And um, I... I I had 150, I think it must have been pounds in those days. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And I paid 120 to Anne McCarrick for my 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 rent. Um, and I wrote four short stories, clickety-click. Right. So had you, Sorry. how did you make the decision to clickety-click and leave the other thing aside? Yeah. Was there a moment where you realised... This is not, I have to do this other thing, like the short stories. The I, I, I think it must have been unconscious. I mean, I, I suddenly I was facilitated. I could just do it. It was just great. And they got published. And they got immediately published Faber, by Faber. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. What, what? But actually you put all that impulse in, right? I don't think, think I don't think work is wasted. Yeah. Um, so first of all, psychologically, I could see what that sense of impossibility or overreach or whatever it was, that, what it had been and the fact that it didn't finish me. That's, so that's mm. really important that you survive some kind of uh, what you would see as catastrophe yeah. and realise that it's not that goddamn catastrophic at all. Yeah. Nobody even noticed the book <laughs> that you didn't write. Okay? Yeah. Nobody even saw the book you didn't write. Uh, and, and, and it's still there in some way mm. and that you can take bits of it and reuse and repurpose and uh, um, and be practical about it. So that was a useful thing. Yeah. yeah. And you'd worked in RTE as well. Yeah, no, and then I got a job in RTE. Yeah, and Nighthawks and people, I mean, some people listening won't know, remember Nighthawks, but I remember no. it was such a brilliant programme. It was, it was so great fun. original and yeah. refreshing. Like, and there's something really, really like space. it on, yeah. on RTE. I don't think there has been since no, anything no, no. like it. No, they couldn't put up with that kind of no. anarchy on the <laughs> airwaves. It was like anything it's to like be they said. they didn't realise what, they, what they had or yeah, something. Yeah, well, they go out and get young people. And I was under 25 when I went in there and I said, you are part of the new demographic, which is 50% of the country were young and under 25. So we were supposed to go out and get them and fine, dib, dib, dib. And off it, we went. it was great fun until it wasn't great fun until yeah, it was well, too it was, much. It, there was a lot of work involved. Yeah. Pressure. Pressure, but also I think slow institutional shutting down so that facilities became harder to get. Uh, money was, t you know, the, you were asked to do 40 more minutes for less money. Mm. So institutionally, they, there was quite a lot of kind of slow, I'd say quite deliberate running down of, uh, of the people involved. Yeah. And that wasn't good for you? And it wasn't I don't good think for it was your good health for or anyone. for anybody who was I don't was think it was it. good for anyone. And, and it, it, you... You kind of um, you spoke about it on Desert Island Disc about how you were burnt out yeah. and all of that, but it it opened up your path then to 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 writing in another way. Like you went for it yeah. then. I mean, I once you cleared out, from that space. Of, uh, what we now know, I mean, language is great. I mean, it's one of the, my projects. In, uh, you know, through writing all these different novels, is how new language facilitates insight. So at the time, I thought it was a nervous breakdown yeah. or whatever. Now I said that was just 
total burnout. Just which we didn't have the word. We didn't burn, have the, the phrase burnout. Yeah, and we, uh, and a lot of the new language it, it takes out the shame of the old. You know, so yeah, their nerves, like a woman's nerves, were yeah, at them and stuff like that. And your head is full of all kinds of everything. You know, so it's really nice to have that clarity. Yeah. Um. So. People said, oh, you're very brave to, to, to leave a good job. I had a good job, but I was actually thought I wouldn't survive staying there, staying there that I didn't have the, the, I didn't really have the option. Yeah. And that's when writing became. So that's more. when writing became. And I'd love to say that it was happy ever after. But the next decade was really anxious. And I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So sorry. No, but that's yeah, around, so part of it. Yeah. But I mean, it work, it's worked out very well. It's worked out in the long say. run. Yeah, and, thank you. Um, let's talk about winning the Booker Prize. Oh, yeah. Your fourth novel was... So that kind of turned the kind of difficult, some of the difficulties around. Yeah. Yeah. It was like that, was it? It was life changing. That's what they say about those. I was those actually, things. you know, you can, you can make a story of it and say that I was completely unknown and then was suddenly mm. in the spotlight. But actually, I was beginning to do all right. I mean, yeah. I had, I had... For the pleasure of Eliza Lynch, what they called an advance, you know. Ooh, yeah. It's hard to remember those days. There was yeah. no, um, you went into a bookshop and you picked out a book off the shelf and that's how you bought your books. Mm. So uh, there was being unknown was a different or being known was different to what it is now. Yeah. Um, and actually in 2007, it was just the beginning of all of that kind of internet, slightly feral internet space. So, um yeah, that was 2007. And what what uh, would you say, looking back, did the Booker Prize do for you, apart from the money and the book sales and for yourself, for your confidence as a writer? Yeah, did, well, did it, it, confused, make a it did confuse me, uh, for sure. And I found it hard to kind of get that, conf- shake out that confusion and kind of get back to what I like doing and, and make make a kind of safe, creative space for myself again. Because you were sort of a, more of a celebrity writer now or what, what was the actual... So I had readers for the first time. And actually lockdown was, was like the old days for me again because the readership disappeared, the bookshops closed and I didn't know where we were. And it felt like being in my 20s again and, and it didn't matter what I write. Oh, was that good? It was yeah. nice, actually. It was a, you know, if you're taking the positives, mm. that was a real positive. So after the book, there were all these readers. And actually, when I, I, I went around and I travelled and I met the readers and I was really interested in, that was really nice, I have to say. Mm. I found the critical culture hard to negotiate, hard to be judged, um, always, I think, you always. You mean what people were saying about you having won the book or about your reviewing yeah, your books? Yeah, they or? all, they all, yeah, just that sense of some kind of... Atten- spotlight on yeah, you and people deciding what they think of it. Having a judgy opinion about Which you hadn't had to deal with before. Hadn't dealt with that before. Yeah, I, I, it was hard, I'd say. Yeah, I think it's always hard for writers. But we were just basically, no matter how kind of bravo, you know, no matter how showy-offy we are, you know, <laughs> I mean, no matter how we go around selling ourselves you know there is basically it's you and the page in a room for years you know they're mm. not exactly invading foreign countries or anything we're just writing our books and you, you have talked about other people's perceptions of it and particularly men maybe looking at it and thinking who's she who's your one or that kind of thing uh yeah well you do become alert to i mean the some of the response to the gathering from men was really stayed was was kind of stinging or really strange and stayed with me for a long time afterwards and I didn't know whether it was because I had won the prize I thought that was what it was that I'd won the prize and that was a real challenge to them 
uh, somehow. Like but, you winning was an injury to them was a was hurt. It? They took it actually personally, like <laughs> it was about them not winning, even God. though they hadn't re- written a book. I mean, that's it's it's hard to undo that kind of sense of connection that people come in with, you know. It's like, actually, huh. <laughs> um, but a few of them were so wrong-minded or something. I thought that the content of the book, which uh, contained sexual abuse uh, of a young boy, that it might actually have spiked something in them, uh, in in the in them psychologically, because it was really toxic in mm-hmm. a very few cases. And actually, when I talk about critical culture, and I, when I talk about uh, more recently male critical culture, it is those. There is a certain thing that I'm trying to describe, which is this kind of real barb, that whatever it is, a real hurtful thing, sometimes a real, a really damaged thing, mm. or a really, and it can be a really misogynistic thing that comes out, and we privilege it more somehow as as uh, as writers. If you're reading about your work and you get that, that somehow that it's. It's hard to forget, put it yeah. that way. We give it a lot of power. We give it a lot of power. But if it is, if it is a misogynistic, more or less misogynistic reviewer, the the culture isn't going to call them out on that. Mm. You know. And what I mean? do you think you came kind of you were the laureate and you spoke a lot about that kind of thing a bit more when you were that? But yeah, Ireland was... is a little bit different. Ireland uh, does silence, <laughs> and Ireland does nice. Uh, silence so, and nice. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about that of the silence and the and the nice. So. When I was laureate, I was looking at reviewing culture and what was clear was the absence of reviews of of books by women. So that's silence. Yeah. And that silence was unnoticed. Unnoticeable. Just nobody saw. Yeah, and it that's just wasn't really interesting. Almost, so that's so below the radar of the radar of the radar. You know, it's so regressed back. But it also does nice in that Irish men and women both are are, are kind of encouraged to be charming. Uh, and encouraged to please, but it's much more so on women, I think, than it is on oh, the men. Yeah. So it's like, why aren't you nice? <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard not to be nice. Yeah. Whereas, you know, say, why aren't you nice to so other cultures? They go, excuse me. And that's what's that to do with anything? Did you ra- th- rail against that a bit in your life, do you think, since... You were younger. Like, did you have that feeling that I have to be nice? I have to be. Yeah, I'm. No, <laughs> I didn't. No. Um, That's what I mean. You didn't go down that. I have to not be nice. Not in my road. work. Yeah. Not in my work. But I, um, you know, you 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 make your life. You make your decisions. So you'd say you'd rather be more moral than not or you would rather be more compassionate than not. Or Do it like an adult. No, you're not going around trying to please everyone all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but in my work, no, I never wanted to be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because you wanted to be real and truthful. Yeah, sometimes I wanted to carry the emotion properly onto the page, mm. which didn't involve. Nice. Thank you very much. No. And going back to uh, what I was saying about it kind of you wouldn't have said a lot about any of those subjects about the that kind of uh, silence and niceness in, in the literary world. And then you did speak. It Was it was it a sense that when you weren't talking about it, you didn't want to get kind of com- distracted by that or get involved It's really hard to pin down, right? If I start make a general complaint about a culture, right? Yeah. People will say, well, who are you talking about? Yeah. You, say, you say, well, what about this guy? And they say, yeah. oh, him, nobody, nobody listens to him. Except 
Except, except. So it's very difficult to complain about a culture. Mm. And complaint is also a difficult mode. Yeah. Because women complaining are, are women on hard. Okay? That's just, that's why the word nag is only specific to women. It is unheard, it's unhearable, and it's annoying, and it's boring, and it's all the rest of it. So if you do... So you didn't want to be a nag? Uh, No, I wanted to be heard. Yeah. So what you do is you make... I I just wanted to make make safe, okay? So if you're going to go out in the rain, make sure you have your umbrella and and your sewester or whatever, your, your coat. So I did it more or less from a point place of authority so it wasn't a complaint it was an observation yeah and i didn't call out individuals i didn't personalize it i didn't uh, i just and i'm and you know if you want bloke language i did it with statistics hmm and so that was very deliberately and the way you approached it because yeah. you knew that you, yeah. otherwise you would come across as oh look at your one just nag complaining yeah well you tell me yeah I think, yeah, yeah I think pe- people would. I think you did it in a very methodical, clear-minded yeah, yeah. way. Yeah. And um, But I, I think also the fact that there has been so many women, Irish women coming up writing around you now, you were sort of on your own as a woman to a degree or not as, pro- other people weren't as prominent as you. I don't know, you'd have to actually writers. look at what was in the papers at the time or if that is prominence, you know. I mean, uh, I certainly didn't feel alone. There were right, very good writers, uh, Mary Morrissey and... Uh, Deirdre Martin, Eilish Negrifna, these are all strong names and I, I'm sure I could list a, a, more and more uh, if I uh, gave it a few more minutes. <laughs> um, there wasn't a sense of hurrah about women's fiction right. That's the way a good, there yeah. is now. And there really is now. And yeah. does that, is that gratifying for you? I mean, are you, I, I know you've done events with Sally Rooney and there's like, I mean, Claire Keegan is is amazing writer as well. And there's so many women in the North as well that I just love reading yeah. to hear a different story from that part of this country that we sure. weren't hearing before. How does that feel as someone who teaches creative writing as well? Well, the unstoppability of Irish fiction is now, uh, you know, tilts female. It is in part to do with an empowered readership, in part to do with the kind of breakdown of authority that the internet uh, uh, gave us and social media gave us. So there was a, a sense of women taking the power that they already had in terms of they were the ones buying the books to in, in fiction, you know, maybe 60, 40, 70, 30s is female to male. Yeah. So um, that's all really brilliant. You might have two minutes where you say, where feminists of one generation look at the young ones and, and say, I wasn't in your way. <laughs> or, you know, uh, whatever, but it's Berbua, basically, yeah. And there's other people saying that, oh, sure, uh, um, a white man of a certain age can't get a book published these That's days. Not there's true. all these women. I know. I'm just. Yeah. I don't think it's true, but it's interesting that argument comes in, doesn't it? Like, yeah, no. I mean, the thing is, for two minutes, you know, and the, it, it, yeah. it do for two minutes, women are doing well, and the men get immediately grumpy. <laughs> like it wasn't me. I didn't do it, and it's not fair. Yeah. yeah? It's true, isn't it, though? There is that uh, narrative comes in. Yeah, well, you know, grievance is, is an, uh, you know, grievance moves moves around, put it that way. Yeah. Do you like this bit when a book is just out and everyone's starting to read it and the people on the internet are, are saying what they think about it? And it, like you say, it's all much, it's very different to when you started writing. Yes. Everyone has an opinion and everyone's allowed sure. to put it out there. Yeah, <laughs> Do no, you I, read everyone's opinion? Uh, I like to take the temperature, surely, of... Uh, um, I like to see what hits home and what is being missed 
maybe. That's kind of for future reference. That's kind of part of the learning of the of, of being a writer. Like what parts of the book that maybe didn't land in the way that you thought yeah, they I just, would? I'm just, I am kind of interested to see what people see and isn't what I saw. That's always in, interesting, mm. more or less. Um, and, well, I tell you, like, it's actually kind of busy because it comes out in a number of different territories. So you're juggling a bits of America and the UK and Ireland. Um, and for maybe all of July, I was just braced for impact. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> braced for impact. I mean, I'm not very efficient. I'm not very <laughs> effective. My emailing goes to pot. I am braced for impact. Yeah. And then, so you have to find a moment where you say, oh, it's happened. Actually, <laughs> I'm through it. Mm. The impact has arrived and I'm still standing. So that was about maybe this day last week. And does it, co- I mean, I was I was very surprised your book didn't end up on the long list for the booker myself. I, I was expecting it to be there because I read it a while ago and then I read it again. So I've read it twice because I saw Claire Keegan saying you should read every book twice. I mean, who has the time? But I think it's a good point because actually I got things from it the second time that I read it that I hadn't. So I think it might be right. But anyway, apart from that, you didn't end up on the booker long list. And I wondered what that was like for you. Does, was it... Uh, well, the timing would have been nice. I have to say, it would have given the book a bit of a boost. Um, uh, so that's just logistically, you go, ah, okay. So that gamble didn't pay off one way or the other. But um, but do you look at the other books and go, why? What? What's? <laughs> How think, much thought do you give to it? You, 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 well, I mean, I think people do think about these things, and it, w- it would be wrong not to uh, sort it out in your head somehow. But I, uh, the the list is more or less a discovery list, which has been the case in the last few years of the Booker, um, that they uh, are are turning up because it's such an amazing PR machine. It's like Mm -hmm. it's almost a waste. It's it's, it's such an opportunity to bring new voices into the public realm. So I think they take the the judges have been taking that opportunity. Um, And so actually, that was the same impulse that brought my work to attention in 2007. So you say, actually, I, you know, grand. That is very sanguine and diplomatic of you, Anne Inerish. Well, you know, prizes aren't magic, okay? It's five people in a room on a on a day, you know? And people who go around complaining that they don't win prizes, I always think of Trump and Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I say, no, you didn't win Georgia. You just didn't have the votes on the day. Yeah. So tell me about your life apart from the books, because you teach... Yeah. How, how long have you been doing that? And is that a, a source of great um, inspiration for you as well to see all these younger people yeah. who are starting out? I like I like fresh texts. <laughs> sounds a bit. Sounds <laughs> a bit. I know you're like I like big butts and I kind of like fresh texts and I kind of like. Yeah, frankly, kinda... <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit. This sounds a bit vampiric. Actually. Yeah, I like yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, I love their energy. I have to say, and um, uh, uh, and, and I don't know if I I don't know if I can do. I do what I do, you know. Um, I like reading their work and responding to their work. That's just literally all it is. You can't really, I'm not, because I'm a different kind of writer, I don't plan my books beforehand and then write them to a plan. I grow them and I, you know, uh, so I'm not really a kind of simple technical teacher, put it that way. I mean, other people do that, I suppose. You do something different. Yeah, I do, I suppose, recognition. And I, I, I'm a great believer that what 
what your the answer to your problem is already on the page. So you look at what you're doing and you say, well, what is it? What is it? So I have an extra eye there to interrogate what you're doing and you say, well, you know, that's a bit like such and such. Okay. Uh, that which went that way. So you bring your reading and your expertise, uh, your reading expertise to mm. it more than your writing. Expertise. And are you working on a new book at the moment? I'm not actually because it takes you a few years, right? It's a it's a it's a three or four year process usually. For yeah. You. Uh, I like to say I'm monogamous when it comes to The National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Because I'm still with the Ren, the Ren. Okay. And you'll be there till till the kind of the publicity the yeah, down? Yeah, or? so maybe maybe next week I'll I'll be writing something else. In the Green Road you have this iconic scene, right? Which is the Christmas shop, which I think since it was out, everyone talks about and every, I actually every Christmas I kinda of try to get it down and I read it or I read it from some somewhere. And it just puts me in that frame of mind. It's a very frenetic scene, but it's brilliant because you perfectly capture that. I think in the Ren, the Ren, there's there's a scene that is going to be. Um, it's shorter, uh, and I don't, you probably don't know which one I'm going to say. No. But it just it really moved me, and I thought this is why Anna Enright is such a genius. There's the bit where Carmel or Nell comes back after she hasn't been, and uh, Carmel is greeting her at the door, and it's a it's a reunion of mother and daughter, a sort of slightly ambivalent daughter, kind of you know slagging her mother slightly as she recounts it. But the way you describe how Carmel feels about that reunion and the kind of, I think you describe her as a lioness and it's the way she's almost pawing her, but then after Licking her it, with the rug of her uh, tongue. I was wondering, <laughs> would you read that little bit? I could. Because it's it's short enough, but I just... So this is based on... Um, it moved me a lot. So this is based on those animal reunion videos that make <laughs> Nell cry. Oh, that makes sense because it know? made me cry. That's so funny. Uh, because there's nothing... Wilder, you know, than the donkey running up to the little girl. <laughs> yeah. oh, God, I, 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 honest, I honestly so much. didn't get that. So now I've got another thing in it. That's brilliant. But it's it was just very beautifully described. And I, this you know, is uh, oh, oh, this is Nell coming back yet. Sorry, yeah, she's coming back from her travels, from her adventures. Standing at my mother's door, I unzip my small shell suitcase and open it out flat on the top step, hunkering down to root through my worn belongings. Under a tangle of charger cable, used underwear and sandals, I find my keys. I always do. The charm is a big neon yellow Tweety Pie, one eyebrow cocked, cartoon wing hands on either hip. This is the look that rattles out from under beds and sofa cushions, the face spotted at a distance and while drunk across dance floors. The reprimand that always comes back to my hand. Tweety, who is a boy, 
I looked it up, has been with me all this time, holding the keys to a door on the other side of the world. And behind that door, my past. The lock turns. Why wouldn't it? And I stoop to drag my spatchcocked suitcase inside. The hall smells like a nice hotel, orange and bergamot, exactly the way it did on the day I left. At first glance, I do not recognise the neat white and indigo cushions on the hall bench, but of course they've been here forever. It was like a month of her life when Carmel knew what she wanted, when the things in shops made complete sense to her and the house would be set in that month for years to come. I send a text. Hey girl. After a moment. Hey, hey. Ding. Question mark. My messages to Carmel announce themselves to the tune of Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins singers, a tech present from yours truly. Maybe I hear it somewhere about, maybe not. Hmm. I attach a quick pic of my right eye, looking quizzical. Behind me, the wedge of the fanlight in the hall. There's a thin-sounding scream somewhere outside. My mother's in the back garden. A silence. Another cry, this time closer. Ah! The sound of the back door opening, the huffing thump of Carmel taking the stairs, saying, oh, oh, and then arms flung wide. Look at you! And we are in the hug. As reunion videos go, this is the one where the grown lioness bounds up to the regular sized human being to batter with huge velvet paws, lick with the rug of her tongue and harmlessly gnaw. Though in my arms, my mother is smaller than she seemed on approach. She tucks in and I graze her crown with the underside of my chin. Why didn't you say? I wanted to surprise you. I wanted to stay out of your clutches, big mama. Take the bus, take the taxi. Oh, no, not the taxi. Take the air coach, the ordinary bus. I can pick you up along the way. Or oh, hang on, give me your flight number. I'll meet you there. Oh, 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 oh. My mother stops saying oh and pulls back from me. Look at you. She will in a minute go back to being a normal lioness. She will drop as though indifferent and prowl about the business of her day, which involves, in this case, checking out the guy beside me in the hall. Mum... Uh, this is David. Hello, she says. Pleased to meet you, Mrs. McDara. Carmel, please, you're very welcome, she says. Come in, come in, you'll have a cup of tea. Oh, God, mother, you sound so Irish, I say. How do you want me to sound? This is a very good question. After that first strangeness, I step through some invisible membrane, some resistance. I am home. I love it. And there's so many moments like that in the book and... Any Anne and Wright book being out in the world, a new one is a source of pleasure for so many people. So thanks, thanks so for much. speaking to us today. Thank you. That was brilliant Anne and Wright there. The book is The Wren, The Wren. Buy it, read it, treasure it. And if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please do leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast. It really makes a difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>